Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. We're now going to turn our attention to our first pillar. So this morning, write this down. This is today's message. Our first pillar this morning is going to be on gospel centrality. If you can't see it, I apologize. Uh, It says gospel centrality. And here's the the tagline of this. This is what this looks like. We're, We're talking about prioritizing the cross of Jesus. The main thing of the scriptures, the main thing of the Christian faith. We're talking about the cross of Jesus at the center of our focus. The gospel at the very center of our Christianity. Gospel centrality. And for that, we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so, man, new year, new me, let's sit for the scripture reading. How about that? All right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to be reading out of the New King James Version. Uh, The scripture verses will be up on the screen. Uh, But if you would follow along with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth in chapter 15, he says this. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by by which also you are saved. In the original language, it's actually being saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. so cool. Like, you can go talk to them about it. He says, but some have fallen asleep. That means they died. They're not narcoleptic there. They're dead. Okay. Verse 7. After that, notice this, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Great evidence to the resurrection of Jesus. What a great argument for its validity. The last of all, notice this, Paul writes that he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Paul was a little late to the game, but better late than never, as they say. He says, notice Paul's words here, very key verses for us today. Verse 9, for I am least of the apostles. I'm the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. This is Paul's story. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's so profound. And his grace toward me was not in vain but I labored more abundantly than they all. I love that. Paul's like, I'm least of all, but man, I worked harder than all of y'all. That's what he says. I labored more abundantly than everyone else, yet not I, he's not boasting in himself, but the grace of God which was with me. God's grace produced some amazing things in Paul's life. Therefore, our last verse, he says, whether it was I or they, It's this gospel, he says, that we preach, and so you believed. This is God's word, to which we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for the gift of your word this morning. And Man, just the gift that it is to pause and be here. We so need a moment like this to focus on who you are. To align our sight with what you've done. And so, Jesus, I I just ask for your mercy and your grace in this place today to just be real, to be so much more than just an idea or theology, but it would be experienced here. We invite your mercy and your grace to, to use me, God, who, like Paul, don't deserve to be here. But Jesus, by your grace, I know I am what I am, and we are who we are. So we just invite you to speak to us Father, we invite you to come hang out with us and minister to us and speak to us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak your heart and your message through me. Get me out of the way so that you can be heard. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, this morning here, as we are going to unpack this text, 1 Corinthians, we start with our first pillar, gospel centrality. Let's begin with a question. Uh, My question this morning is, how's your focus? How's your focus? No, no, really, like, how are you at focusing? Are you paying attention? Okay. How are you at focusing? You know, uh, growing up with multiple siblings, it's was an interesting experience, and now having kids, seeing how each person has their own focus weaknesses. Um, Looking at my kids, they each have different degrees and skill sets when it comes to focus, Uh, and they're all different. You know, my daughter Evie is a lot like me. My sister-in-law Erin was reminding me of this yesterday. Um, Evie is is the kind of young girl that, that, like her dad, Seems like she can't focus. But usually the reason why she's not focused is because she's so focused on something else. Us ADD people get a really bad rap, okay? It's not that we can't focus. It's that we don't focus where we don't want to, okay? Can I get an amen to that? Anybody feel me? Like, when I'm having, listen, and it's not that you're boring either, okay? I just want you to know that. It's just sometimes there's things that just draw, I guess that's being distracted and not focused. I guess that's the problem. But, you know, even just the other day as we were tearing out all the tile in our house and there was dust everywhere, there was Evie. We were cleaning up the house. It was like 10 o'clock at night. And, and, and Tyler, I know, is doing the same thing right now. So he knows a lot about the, tie, the tile removal journey. Um, but like, it's like 90% of it is just cleaning it up. Like, chipping it up is the fun part. It's like, whoa, you know, you feel like a construction worker with this jackhammer. It's a lot of fun. Uh, But it just really becomes a big mess that you clean up out of your house. And there we were at, like, 10 o'clock. We just wanted to get all the kids to bed, but we wanted to get as much dust out of the house as possible. And so I come in the house, and there's Evie on a mission with a mop, man. Like, I mean, like, like she's doing probably like 100 square feet per minute, like just killing it. And just, you can't, like, you, you talk to her and she's not even paying attention. That's like so her personality. And there she is locked in. She did every square inch of our living room. There, was, there wasn't a single dust mite left on that floor. And she's four years old. She's four years old. She can't even hold the mop yet. She's at the bottom of it, like scrubbing it. She might as well have, have a, a toothbrush. Like she was just like going at it. And meanwhile, Judah's in the other room on his Nintendo Switch, you know, focused on Fortnite or something, you know. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. It reminds me of uh, the fact, again, that whether it's Evie, Judah, me, you, we all have our own our own defaults and our own tendencies with focus. Uh, The one thing that we all have in common, I think, is that we all have our own weaknesses, our own inability uh, to stay locked in on the things that matter most, right? The things that deserve our attention. It's why new years are so great, right? We move into a new year and we're able to reset, aren't we? We're able to refocus. And we're able to kind of gather our priorities and say, okay, what are the things that matter most as I start a new year? And one of the great ways that a lot of people do this is they find like a word. Have you guys done this? Do you do this? You have like your word and it's your main focus for the year. And you're like, okay, this is 2021, new year, new me. Here's my word. Perseverance, you know, or like productivity or like, you know, cash flow, whatever your thing is, you know, like, you know, um, health, right? Like, so you kind of have these like zeroed in things, this this, um, th- it's this aim, I think, to ultimately do what Stephen Covey describes in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, he-, he says this great uh, line that it, I think really summarizes a great principle for life and leadership. Uh, if we could all just do this, I think we would be in a much better place. Here's what he says. Stephen Covey says that in life, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Isn't that true? How many of our problems in life come because we take main things and we make them secondary things, or we take secondary things and we make them main things? Stephen Covey says, in life, man, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. You know, I think the Apostle Paul would agree with Stephen Covey. Here in 1 Corinthians, what you have is the Apostle Paul doing what he he is consistently doing in all of his letters to the churches. Uh, the Apostle Paul is one of the primary authors of the New Testament when it comes to, to quantity of books. Uh, contrary to, to popular knowledge, 
uh, it's actually Luke who has written the most content. Less books than Paul. He wrote um, Luke and Acts, most content. But Paul has written the most letters. He was an early church leader that God radically saved and used to bring the church uh, back, constantly back to that proper place of seeing Jesus rightly. And, and if you really take all of his letters, there's so many letters. Most of the New Testament, if you're kind of new to the Bible, it is really essentially these letters that a pastor is sending to Christians, helping guide them along the way. You have Romans, you have First and Second Corinthians, of which we just read. You have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You have Titus, Philemon, First and Second Timothy, First and Second Thessalonians. And these are all letters. Letters, either written to churches in regions or large regions or individuals. They're letters written with usually the same ultimate goal, bringing a distracted church back in to focus. Bringing what's been pushed aside to become peripheral back into the crosshairs of what needs to be focused on. And specifically, listen to this. If you were to look at all of these letters of Paul, what you find in every single letter is you have Paul attempting to help the church in some form of fashion come back to the gospel. Come back to what he actually calls here in this section we just read. It's verse 3. He calls the gospel the main thing. He says there in verse 3 that the gospel is first of all. That's what he says. If you have an ESV version, it says of first importance. And Paul's passion was to do what Stephen Covey says with the church, to make sure that the gospel is the main thing that's kept the main thing. And so in, in Galatia, the church there, the gospel had been altered. So Paul's like, no, no, no. If an angel from heaven or any other man preaches any other gospel than what you've heard, let him be accursed, Paul says. There's one gospel. You get into Colossians, and the gospel starts to get like syncretized with other world religions and viewpoints. He's like, no, that's, that's, that's a part of the gospel, but you're missing the whole of the gospel. And you just go down the list. You get into Romans, and you have some people in the church, um, what they're doing is they're, they're kind of like applying the gospel to other people. This is Romans, but not themselves. Oh, like those people that need the gospel. That, not like me, who's been good enough for God, but like those people that need the good news of Jesus. Like they, so, so this is Paul's mission, man. All of his letters, some attempt to make sure that the main thing is kept the main thing. And it's also true here in 1 Corinthians. Paul says there, did you read it with me? Paul says, I declare to you, verse 1, the gospel. I'm bringing the gospel back to bear on your lives, in your ears. I want you to know the gospel. He says it's the most important thing. Paul is writing to a church at this point that was getting the gospel wrong. There was actually at that time people that were influencing the church saying that this sort of Gnostic view and this sort of... Um, uh, this deist view that didn't believe that resurrection, that God doesn't do miracles. So there's no way that Jesus actually rose from the dead, right? Maybe he died for your sins, but they're kind of saying, but come on, you don't need to believe in that like resurrection stuff. And Paul's like, without the resurrection, you have a dead savior. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not just that Jesus died for your sins. It's also that he rose victoriously over death and that he's alive and reigning right now. And so he actually goes on to say in chapter 15 of this book, he says, man, if you believe in the gospel, but you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, he's like, you are of most men the most pitiable. He says, it's pitiful, is what he says. That's like the most pitiful viewpoint is to, is to believe in a Jesus that never rose from the dead. So Paul's like, no, no, let's get back to the gospel. It's the primary thing. Uh, and so Paul declares to them a clear gospel message. And so, you know, if we're going to do, again, what Stephen Covey says, which is keep the main thing the main thing, let's make sure we define it. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? You'll see the, the, the verse and the word used there in verse 1. Uh, I want to start by saying the word gospel is not a uniquely Christian word. The Greek word evangelion, where we get the word evangelist, was a term used in the military for a news courier who would relay the message of victory from the battle back to the village. So if you went to war and you guys won the war, you had the evangelist that you would send back home and he would come bringing the good news that the battle was won. Isn't that an interesting idea? What a great way to summarize what evangelism is. Hey, the battle's been won, right? Jesus has won. Proclaiming the victory. That's exactly what an evangelist did. He proclaimed the good news. That's just really simple, isn't it? The gospel. That's what it means. 
good news. Man, and I think that's just reason enough. You look around our culture and you see all the news that we're constantly consuming. Like, we need to be reminded of this. Like, we're shaped by news. Did you know that? You're shaped by the stories you're consuming and the, the narratives and the perspectives. And um, a lot of us, I don't know if, if you found this, a lot of us this year, maybe you found the, the tendency that you have that when you're consuming mainstream news, there's this like downward trajectory towards depression. And it's like, and, you know, it used to be like you'd have to turn on the TV and that was hard enough. Remember this classic Jack Johnson song where he's like, too many people died on the news tonight, man. And it's true. But now we're like, yeah, but I want to be more depressed. And so send it to my pocket when people die, right? Like, I want to, what's so sad in the world right now? Cool. You know what I mean? So we're like constantly, we're, we're wired in this system that we're into just constantly being shaped by really harsh, depressing news. And we might not realize it, but it's shaping our view. It's shaping our hope. It's shaping your purpose. This is why I'm a Christian, man. Good news. <laughs> Great news. There's enough bad news. There's enough sad news. You know, there's a danger in the church when, when, when people are, listen, if you ever come to church here and you walk out of here more depressed than you came in, I'm not doing my job. The job of an evangelist is not to bum people out with bad news, but it's to fill hearts with hope because of good news. Look at what Jesus has done. That's the gospel. So Paul's like, listen, that good news, it's gotten lost among the church. It's gotten lost. So he says, listen, I, I got to declare to you the gospel. I, I got to make, make sure it's clear again. And so let, let's go over this real quick, the gospel. And the, the print is kind of small, might be hard to read, but let me explain it to you this way. Um, I, Paul starts with giving us what we would call kind of the gospel on the ground. We'll call this like a zoomed in look at the gospel. The gospel is one message that can be communicated a lot of different ways. The good news of what God has done through Christ can be communicated a lot of different ways. In fact, every book of the Bible that you read, you'll have the, the same gospel almost shared from a different angle. A great study on this is just read the book of Acts and see the different good news messages about Jesus that Paul preaches um, to different cultures. Like, this is another point, I'll go over this in a couple weeks, but it's like, it's really important for Christians to make sure we are uh, conscious of the culture that we're preaching to, that we're not just giving, like, here's the ABCs of the gospel without first, like, asking some questions. Like, what is the gospel to your situation? Like, how is Jesus a savior in that situation? It's the same message, but it's, it can be kind of shared a couple different ways depending on the cultural context. Uh, one of the greatest resources on this I'm going to recommend is a book by Matt Chandler. You guys heard of Matt Chandler and a phenomenal leader and pastor out of Texas? He wrote a book called The Explicit gospel. That's your recommended reading for this week. And in that book, Matt Chandler goes into detail regarding the gospel on the ground and the gospel in the air. It's just a good look, man, helping the church become more fluent in the language of what Jesus has done. And really, I think this is helpful for me. Um, I, I've gone through all sorts of different training and classes to try to get the gospel down. Years ago, I got to go to, Russ, you were with me, bro. Me and Russ went to this thing called a gospel, ready for this? A gospel boot camp, where you get up in front of a guy who's been preaching the gospel his whole life. You get up in front of him, and you do your best attempt at the gospel message, and they basically critique you. It's, you know how you feel right now? That's how I felt, okay? Like, painful. I think I got, like, booed off the, the pulpit. Like, it was... It was rough, you know? And so sometimes, like, there's, a, there's kind of two extremes here with the gospel. I think for a lot of us, we might be, we might be like, too loose. Like, we're not fluent at all. Like, we, we know the Proverbs, but, like, the church should know the good news it's proclaiming. Like, we should know what it is. But there's also an extreme to where we can be so rigid. Like, this is the only way to communicate the gospel. That's kind of what this boot camp was like. Like, well, you didn't say this point. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess they didn't get saved then. I'm sorry, you know, like... But here's, I think, a good summary of what this looks like. So the gospel on the ground is kind of like zooming in on the message, like looking at it closely, looking at your and my life. And here's what we would say, according to what Paul says here in verses 3 through, what is it, 5? By the way, here in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, what you have here in this passage is the most technical gospel in all the New Testament. It's the most technical and precise. Paul says Christ died for our sins 
according to the scriptures. And he rose again after he was buried and rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. The most technical. Uh, This is what you would call the gospel on the ground message, zoomed in. Here's what the gospel on the ground says. The gospel on the ground is this. Here's, by the way, if you're new to the Christian faith, you're not sure, you're exploring, what is this whole Jesus thing about? Check this out. This is what it's about. The gospel of Jesus, the Christian faith, is good news. That Jesus Christ, the righteous, died for our sins. You don't have to work your way to God. You don't have to die for your own sins because Jesus, the righteous, who knew no sin, became sin on your behalf. Went to a cross. He died for our sins. That's the language Paul uses. He died on, in, in, uh, in place of our sins and rose again eternally triumphant over all his enemies, including death, including every enemy that, that, God, uh, that opposes God. So that, listen now, there is no condemnation. Someone say amen. There is no condemnation for those who believe. Hallelujah. But only everlasting joy found in him forever. Let me read that again without interrupting it. The good news that Jesus Christ the righteous died for our sins and rose again eternally triumphant over all his enemies so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe but only everlasting joy found in him forever. And so if today you're kind of like slumped over and down in your Christian faith, could it be that you've forgotten this? Maybe we need to pray like David, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. What joy to know that me who, I who was separated from God, I am now saved and reconciled back to God with the hope of eternal life, eternal joy, with no condemnation forever. Stop condemning yourself. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He saved you. That's the gospel on the ground. That's a gospel of salvation. Now, uh, I like the idea of thinking about also the gospel in the air, which is where you zoom out of what Paul is saying here. And you see the gospel as not just the good news of what God does for you individually, but we we start, and this is really important, I think, in our culture, um, because like most people have seen the passion of the Christ. Like, they, they have some general grasp on, like, maybe it, it's probably flawed and we got to fix it, but there's some idea of atonement. Like, Jesus died for sins, forgiveness of sins, there's a cross, there's Jesus. Uh, but, but listen, the gospel, sometimes today what we can do is we can, like, truncate it. Like, we cut off the, 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 the whole story and we just make it like a presentation. But what we need to see is that in Scripture, the gospel is not just this thing on the ground that's isolated for you, but the gospel is actually a part of this bigger picture of what the God of the universe is doing in the whole world. Is that making sense? Let me explain to you this way. It's called the gospel in the air, of which this is a part. The gospel is the, in the air is when you zoom out, what you see is that the gospel is also the good news that God is making all things new in and through the power of his son, Jesus Christ. And so you're like, wait, that's familiar language. Like, doesn't it say that if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creation. Like, isn't that when the gospel applies to me? I become new. That's beautiful. But you know what else the Bible says? The Bible says that there's a day coming with a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. The Bible says that there's a day coming where God is going to renew the earth and everything that's evil and corrupt and sick and twisted, everything that is the source of pain and disease, COVID-19 and cancer will bow at the feet of Jesus. And he will make all things new, a place and a time where there is no more pain, there is no more tears, there is no more suffering, there is no more ventilators, there is no more mass. Praise the Lord, okay? No mass in heaven. You see, it's this bigger narrative. It's called the meta-narrative of Scripture. Creation. God made, as a good God, he made everything good for a purpose, on purpose. A purpose of working with him for a beautiful vision of what the world could be. There's a fall. Man, through sin, has broken the created order. We've disconnected from God, and everything is the way it is because we have thrown a wrench in the gears of the system. Sin has flawed uh, tremendously the, the order that God had. But the good news is that God is gracious and loving and kind and patient He's slow to anger, and so he has always, from the beginning of time, had this plan to renew what had been destroyed. He does so through his son, Jesus Christ, by which he makes all of us new. What great news. A new heart, a new start, a new life. And he says, okay, now that you are new, I want to use you to continue to make all things new. Like, make your workplace new. Make your homes new. Make your neighborhoods new, neighborhoods new. You know, how you parent, let that be new, right? It's this new humanity that is a, a, a glimpse of the fact that God is making all things new. Does that connect? 
hopefully. We have a podcast, so you have to listen to that all again. That's okay. But here, here's the heart of this, right? We have the gospel on the ground and the gospel in the air. And this message is what the Christian faith is all about. This is what God is constantly calling the church to get back to. Now, in our day and age, if Paul were to write us a letter about the gospel, I don't think for most of us our issue is like the theology of it. Like if I'm just talking about our church. Like when we think about gospel centrality and what Jesus has done for us, uh, through us, like as we think about that, I don't, as I'm praying even, like I don't sense that our biggest issues are just that we don't know the information. Uh, you know, I think there might be some syncretism I, I see that a bit in the church where we sort of like, we, we unite uh, sort of Jesus' vision with maybe like this, this ultimate American vision. Um, I think there's a greater kingdom vision behind that. I think there's something there. But, but by and large, here's what I've noticed, at least in my own life and in the church at large when it comes to the gospel. Here's the biggest problem. Let me say this. Here's the biggest gospel, uh, obstacle to gospel centrality in our church and in your life. Ready? You don't need it anymore. You don't need it anymore. Familiarity. I know the gospel. It's good news. No, it's become old news. And for a lot of us, the way that we see the gospel is we see it as like this access door that saved me. And you know what's interesting? Paul's like, that is not a helpful way to think about the gospel. In the words of John Piper, you never, ever, ever, ever outgrow your need for the gospel. Never. The gospel is not just this thing that you receive in Jesus, and now you got to go on and you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and be good enough. I've tried this. Have you tried this? This is usually how like, salvation testimonies go. It's also one of the main reasons why people are leaving the church because they're basing it on their performance. Like, What would it be like in the church if we were actually gospel-centered? And we were like, listen, what Jesus did is not just essential for then, it's essential for now and getting us to the finish line. The gospel, uh, the way that J.D. Greer says it so beautifully, and, and I've described this a lot. That's another, I'd recommend that resource as well, uh, the, the book Gospel by J.D. Greer. And he says this, uh, the gospel is not the diving board off which we jump into the pool of Christianity. He says the gospel is the pool. I love that. Did you know that Christian maturity is not moving farther and further beyond the gospel? Christian maturity is moving deeper and deeper into the gospel. That's a mature Christian. Look what I can do. No, no, no. Here's a mature Christian. A mature Christian doesn't go, man, look what I can do. Here, here's maturity. Look what Jesus has done. The more that resonates in your soul, man, the more mature you're becoming. That's Christian maturity. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that. Notice what he said there in verse 1. Can you read these verses? He says, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. Yeah, I've heard that, Paul. He says, it's what you received. Yeah, I've done that. But he says, it's in which you stand. You, listen, you don't get saved by the gospel and then stand in your works. You get saved by the gospel. Paul says, you stand in the gospel. And then he goes on to say this, and you are also being saved by what Christ has done. The, the, the cross of Christ it must be at the center of our focus, and we have this again, this tendency to kind of push it aside and allow it to be a secondary thing rather than the central thing. The goal is to keep the main thing, the main thing. I would posit to you that if you have lost a lot of your passion for Jesus, I would go back to the question of ask yourself, where's the gospel in your life? Where's the gospel? Now, here in this passage, what Paul does for us is he gives us a, a few, I think, key ways to be gospel centered people. Like a few ways forward. It's one thing to say, you know, and also I'm, I'm almost like, I don't know. It's kind of like a bad taste in my mouth even when I use the word gospel-centered because it's such an overused phrase. I've met, I've messed, I've, I've met some of the most un-gospel-like people who talk about gospel-centeredness all day long. And they miss the center of the gospel, which is love. So this is not just about an idea. Let's bring this a little closer. What does it look like for you and me to actually be gospel-centered? These are four quick things. Write these down. I'm going to be fast. I promise you. By the gospel, I will do it. Okay? Gospel-centered theology, number one. This is huge. This is where it starts. Gospel-centered theology. 
gospel-centered theology. Cross-centered understanding of God and our approach to Scripture. This is where we as a church, if we're going to become a gospel-centered people, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. If that's going to be us, we got to have gospel-centered theology. Notice what Paul says there in verse 3 as he's describing the gospel. He says, this work of Christ, all that he's done, isn't it great that Paul's gospel says it's all according to the scriptures? Paul's like, all the things that were written were ultimately written pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the point of the Bible. All of scripture points to Jesus. The gospel is the, the big idea of scripture. I love this quote by Dave Harvey. Look at this. He says that when it comes to our handling of the Bible, he says, the gospel is the heart of the Bible. Everything in Scripture is either preparation for the gospel, presentation of the gospel, or participation in the gospel. Isn't that great? At wherever you're at, like wherever you, if you do the Bible relay thing, which I don't recommend, and you're just like, Lord, speak to me, boom, all right? Get a Bible reading plan, okay? If you do that, Wherever you're at is going to find itself in one of those categories. It's either preparation for the gospel, God promising to make all things new through his son Jesus. It's going to be a presentation of the gospel, whether it's by Jesus or Paul or even the Old Testament prophets prophesying that presentation. Or it's going to be some kind of participation in how the gospel informs and transforms our whole lives. It's the point of the Bible. It's the point of scripture. Paul says Christ died according to the scriptures, and I just think this is such an important point. Uh, Jesus uh, re-emphasized this um, when he was speaking to his, um, his opponents in his life. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders who you could call gospel, or rather, let me say this, Bible professionals. The Pharisees. They had like the corner on theology, right? Like they, they, they knew the Bible more than anyone. They, could, they, they read it back and forward, the Hebrew, the meaning, the cross-referencing. They could interpret any verse to you. And Jesus comes on the scene to a bunch of, I just imagine there's a bunch of like Pharisees in a Bible study, like a little small group. Like, and they're there like with these false humble faces on. But really they're trying to think, how can I become better than the person next to me? And how can I use God's word to make a better me? And it's very like, um, you know, Proper exposition of scripture, the word is, is exegesis. Have you heard that phrase? So like a great, if, God ever, if you ever move on, you know, um, God calls you to another church, one thing you really want to look for from the pulpit is exegesis, which is just expounding what the Bible says, right? Not like TED Talk, you know, inspirational things. Like here's 10 steps for this and that. It's like, well, you know, what does the Bible say, right? Um, and so that's, that's called exegesis. Um, there's something called eisegesis, which is where you take a passage and you isolate it out of context and you teach on it, but it doesn't mean what it actually means when you read it in its context. So we're going to be going through the book of Philippians in February. And in chapter 4, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Have you read the context? It's not like I didn't study for this test. I can do all things. <laughs> right? God, if your word is true, right? You're proposing to this girl, you're not even sure if she's into you. I can do all <laughs> things. Okay. Eisegesis, gotta be careful of that. You know, there's a third uh, word that's been used in, in theology circles lately to describe most, uh, uh, most people's approach to the Bible. I wish there was more exegesis, there's a whole lot of eisegesis, but today what you have in the church is something called narcissesis. It's where you read the Bible looking for you. Narcissistic approach to seeing how, where can I find me? How can this make it? Listen, the Bible's not about you. The Bible's not about me. Jesus said this to the Pharisees. In John chapter 5, they're having their Bible study. He shows up, he says, you search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. He says, but these are they which testify of me. If you understood the point of scripture, you would be bowing at my feet right now because that Bible study is ultimately led, supposed to lead to me. Um, Jesus, after he resurrects, he's walking with some of his disciples in Luke 24. I just want to give you these ideas. And it says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, the Bible, it says, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The heading there is the disciples' eyes are opened as Jesus expounds the scriptures to him, showing how he is the point of scripture. Gospel-centered theology. 
not a man-centered approach to Scripture. The Bible is not a fortune cookie book to just help you figure out how you can live a better life. It's not less than that. Don't get me wrong. Biblical principles will make your life a lot better. Like just start running your business according to Proverbs. You'll see an instant scale, you know. But listen, that's not what it exists for. It's not less than that, but Scripture is more than that. Scripture is not primarily anything other than a vision of who Jesus is. And the reason why I'm saying this is because if we get this wrong, we get our theology wrong. If we approach the Bible wrong, we end up even with a man-centered view of God. We, 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 listen, we end up picturing a God who's more like a butler rather than the sovereign Lord over my whole life. Cross-centered theology. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Uh, A.W. Tozer famously says this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. God. What comes into your mind? What comes into your mind? How do you picture him? How do you envision God? What's his posture toward you right now? Is he fur-browed? Is he disappointed? Because you didn't do what you were supposed to? Is he kind of angry? Is he sort of reluctant to be your dad? Is he sort of like, ah, bearing with you? I would ask you, do you have a gospel-centered theology? Is the gospel informing how you view God? That's, That's the big idea here, man. What Jesus comes to give us is a better understanding of God. We studied the Gospel of John, and what we saw is that Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to look into it a little bit more, look at the cross. The cross is the central point where all of our questions about God, all of our speculation about God, can just be can just be like simplified. What what comes into your mind when you think about God? Is it the cross? gospel-centered theology. This is just so key. Um, I think, I'm going to just point out these two specific. This is one example of it. That is a very small couple words. <laughs> I promise you there's something on the screen, okay? Uh, in, uh, in the production team's defense, I gave Mike my slides five minutes before worship. Okay. God is love. God is holy. Which one is true? Is God holy or is God loving? Yes. Amen. I think without the cross, what you can do is live in either one or the two. You can say, man, God is just holy, and, and, and man, I'm just, I'm just a wretched sinner, and he's so unlike me, and I'm unholy. And you can kind of have this view of God that he's just holy. And this is what the enemy does. He shows you God's holiness, but he hides his love. God is also love. God is holy, 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 but God is love. He demonstrates his own love toward us. Now, while we were sinners and unholy, he died for us. God is love. Or you go, man, God is just all love. What you're really saying is love is God when you take out his holiness. And you say God is just love and God is just, and so what you, listen, but when you see the cross, what you see is this, this, this um, intersection of the depravity and the sinfulness of man and how holy God is and how detrimental sin is. So detrimental that God himself had to suffer for sin. But you also see the very love of God on display for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So, so this is really important, man. What kind of theology do you have? Do you have a religious theology, self-centered? Do you have a gospel theology? I love this expression. I just thought this was like worth sharing. This is so helpful. I, I love, this, I love this, this idea. Religion says, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. The gospel says, I messed up. I need to call my dad. You know, I want my kids to feel a sense of the father heart of God in my parenting to where when they mess up, they don't go, man, i got to run from God. There should be some godly fear. But I pray that they go, I need to call dad. I'm in trouble, even if I messed up. Gospel-centered theology. Write this down. Gospel-centered identity. Gospel-centered identity. This is who we are. So it starts with seeing God clearly, approaching the scriptures properly which gives us a proper view of God that's cross-centered. We understand God through the lens of the cross. Most things in the church go wrong when we kind of emphasize other things other than the cross or in place of the cross. Like I'm all about the the power of the spirit in the church. I'm all about a practicality, but like the cross has to be at the center there, okay? Gospel-centered identity is the second thing, and we, we see Paul get into this 
I did my Bible relay and I lost my spot. Hold on. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is, is listing all the different people that Jesus, um, Jesus visited after his resurrection. He appeared to eyewitnesses. The, the, they saw him. They, they, they touched this. They saw the, the, the holes in his hands and his side. It's this tangible evidence of his resurrection. He died and rose, and there's evidence for it. Over 500 witnesses who all ended up giving their lives, most of which gave up their lives for their testimony. Right? It's one thing to try to like um, try to like get this like fake story going as long as we can. Like, oh no, Jesus died. Let's try to keep this thing going. It's another thing to uh, be face to face with your own death and stick into your story. It's like Jesus really rose and he appeared, right? And so now, now Paul's listing all these people that Jesus appeared to, and there was one last person that Jesus appeared to, and it wasn't the apostle Paul. Okay, it was the Pharisee hostile Saul. Same guy, different person. Do you know what I'm saying? Same guy, different person. Uh, B.C., before Christ. Uh, Paul was a persecutor of the church. He lived. The Bible says that he breathed threats against his church, the church. So like killing Christians, silencing the church, was the very air that Paul breathed. It was his passion. It's the thing that made his lungs inhale and exhale was killing Christians, followers of the way of Jesus. Uh, and here's what Jesus did. Jesus saved Paul. Radically saved him. This is what Jesus does. Jesus saves. That's what he does. He's really good at it. He's much better of a savior than we are a sinner even. And even the most rebellious among us um, we see rescued. Um, and, and so Paul is describing how he was the last person. Notice what he says though. He's talking about his own identity as it comes to the gospel. Did you see verse 9? For I am the least of the apostles. Like I didn't walk with Jesus those three years and be trained by him and discipled by him. I was doing the opposite. I was trying to kill those that were following Jesus. He goes, I persecuted the church of God. So Paul's talking about who he is. He's talking about his identity. But there's such a profound verse here in verse 10 where Paul's zero ends on how he actually sees himself. He says, but by the grace of God, the gospel, the unmerited favor and love of God to save us who don't deserve it, by the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. Who I am does not find its definition in what I've done. Let me say that again. Who you are is not defined by what you've done. Who you are is defined by what Jesus has done. Paul says, I've done some things, Paul says. In fact, it's funny. Here Paul's talking about the bad things he did. But if you go to Philippians 3, Paul talks about all the good things he did. He's like, man, if anybody was like, Coming close to being justified by works? He's like, uh, it's kind of me. I'm kind of your guy. Okay. In Philippians 3, Paul's talking about all the good that he's done. And then here in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about all the things that have made him unworthy for salvation. It's usually where we can find ourselves in our identity, right? A lot of us today, maybe you have a little bit too high a view of yourself. And your identity is in the good that you've done and the success you've done, the works that you've done. And at the end of the day, that's going to lead you to a, a dangerous place called pride. Or maybe you've, you just have too low a view of yourself because your whole identity is not wrapped up in who God is and how he made you and how he loves you, but it's in what you've done, what you failed to do. You weren't the, the husband or the wife you, you wanted to be. You weren't the mom or dad you wanted to be. You yelled at your kids even though you didn't want to be. You fell back into that sin again and again and again, even though you promised you never would again. See, that's identity based in our own behavior. But the gospel says, listen, yeah, you've done those things, but that's not who you are. Paul says, I am what I am according to the gospel. It's the truest thing about me, a gospel-centered identity. Let's let Tim Keller kind of summarize this. Tim Keller says, if our identity is in our works, rather than Christ, success will go to our heads and failure will go to our hearts. Ain't that true? Have you played the roller coaster up and down Christian game? Listen, if your Christian experience is all about your own ups and downs of performance, your Christian, your Christian experience is, is too much about you. Make it more about Jesus and what he's done for you. Because that leads me to the next point, which is gospel-centered activity. Uh, notice that Paul says the grace of God defines who I am, but notice that Paul says it actually is producing things in my life. He goes, I I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, but he goes, but this grace that has come to me 
has transformed my life. He says, I labored more abundantly than they all. He says, yet not I, but the grace of God which is in me. So, so you kind of have these two extremes. Again, you have one extreme that just says, man, I got to like work my way to God. I got to labor. And you're like, you're like exhausted right now because you've made Christianity all about your performance. And you've taken the gospel and put it over here. And, and you're not gospel-centered. You're self-centered too much on your performance. And it's like you could be working, working, working. And then there's this other extreme where like, um, it's called, it's called um, uh, licentiousness, okay? Or another word is antinomianism. Hello, big words. What does it mean? I don't know. I'm just kidding. Um, but there's this other idea that just kind of says, yeah, man, I, I'm, I'm saved, man. I don't have to work. I don't do anything. I'm just, you know, God saved me. It's like, well, you're being a jerk to your wife. Yeah, but I'm saved. It's like, you know. And, and, and listen, now, here's what, don't hear, me, don't hear me say the wrong thing. Don't hear me say, work harder then. No, what I would ask you is, has, has the gospel really changed your life? Like, if you get hit by a train, I pray it never happens. <laughs> Think about your illustrations ahead of time. Okay. You're going to be different. <laughs> Depending on things. <laughs> I'm not going to drag that further. Drag that further. Okay, sorry. Oh, stop it. Okay. So it's like cause and effect, right? The, and, and corny illustration, but think about this. There is no, powerful, there's not, there's no more powerful force in the universe than the gospel. There's nothing more powerful than the gospel. There's nothing more powerful than the grace of God. The grace of God comes to you to enter in you, to transform you. It makes you different. And so don't hear this as a point to say, work harder than because you've been saved. No, go back to your salvation. You see, Jesus talks about this in John 15, right? He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. A lot of us, we read that and we go, yeah, okay, I got to bear fruit. Jesus like, goes on to talk about like, cutting down branches and throwing them in the fire. Like, I don't want, it. I don't want that. So like, I'm going to work really hard. And I'm gonna, I got to go bear fruit. Okay, bear fruit, go. Like, tell that to an apple tree, right? Bear fruit, go. It's like, it doesn't happen. What happens is that tree, it abides. It makes its home. It has roots that saturate itself in the gospel. That's the Christian life. That might be a better word than gospel-centered. Gospel-saturated, right? And the idea is you just make, listen, make I challenge you for this in 2021. Make it your aim this year to just have your roots and to have your home in the gospel. Watch what God does. Watch how he changes you. Watch how the power to love that person that you've been struggling to love, it comes to you and it's not actually in you. It comes to you. Watch how the gospel changes you as you bear fruit by taking root in Jesus uh, this is the heart of this. And then lastly, we'll close with this. Invite the band to come up. Thanks for your patience. Lastly, gospel-centered ministry. Paul talks about his identity. He talks about his gospel-centered activity, how the gospel is transforming even what he does and why he does it. And then lastly, in verse 11, he says, this is the message that we preach. And this is really like it's sequential, right? So like it starts with being personally transformed by who God really is and not how you think he is. He's not just holy. He's not just loving. Look at the cross. You see a holy, loving God. And then that gospel begins to transform who you are. Jonathan Edwards says that there's a, there's a difference between knowing that honey is sweet and having that sweetness burst alive in your mouth. Think about the gospel. It's a difference between knowing that God's good. But in the words of Psalm 34, it's a whole other thing to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a whole other thing for the gospel to change you, and it, it starts to define who you are. It's the truest thing about you, not your work, not, your, not, not any other title except being a child of God. That begins to transform even the activity of your life. You start doing different things. As Tim Keller says, I don't obey so that I am accepted, but I'm accepted. Through Jesus, therefore, I obey. And then eventually what's going to start to happen is our ministry to others is going to look a lot like, like more, look a lot, like, look a lot more, that's the key word, a lot more like Jesus, right? 
Jesus was this like perfect embodiment, the scripture says, of truth and grace. And Paul says that's our message. He goes, we preach Christ. That's who we preach. We preach that Jesus. Um, when I think about our ministry to the world around us, I think about our church. Like, and, and again, remember, the gospel is not for non-Christians. The gospel is for you and me too. The gospel is for the church. So we just think about like, the ministry of the gospel in our lives and to the world around us. We need to think about what we share and what we show. That's what we're talking about. We've got to think about as passionate as we are about politics. Paul says this, I have the right to express every idea I have. But he says this, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. That's what he says. What this world needs is the good news. And the good news isn't going to come through anyone except those to whom it's first come. And it comes through us. It's what I share. The primary message of what Jesus has done, the gospel. But it also has to be what I show. So that when people come to me and they confess their sin, when they've messed up, here's a question. Here's what determines if you're gospel-centered or not. Do they get their heart encouraged with what Jesus has done? Do they have this feeling of grace? And, and the reason why I want to emphasize this, especially as a church, is like, this is the difference maker between whether or not a message like this gets amens and actually gets implemented. Um, you, know what, you know how I know the grace of God? Can I really tell you? The way that for me I've tasted and seen that God is good is because God's put people in my life that have just embodied who he is. It's called the body of Christ. It's one thing to go, I know grace, I know the idea. It's a whole other thing to sit across from someone, be with someone, that's so been transformed by the gospel that you go, well, maybe it's true for me. And that ministers to you. It's like healing balm on a, on a soul that's just become hard. And maybe instead of just waiting for that to come to you, what if you start being that to someone else? What if you open up your heart and say, God, I, listen, I know a lot about your gospel, but maybe I haven't had your love poured out in my heart by your Holy Spirit. So let's just invite God to do that. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.